Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. We were born exactly 49 years to the day apart. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders, sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. Judge Motley's life and career has been a true inspiration to me as I have pursued this professional path. That was Associate Justice Katanji Brown Jackson addressing a crowd at the White House after being nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. But who was Judge Motley and what was her impact? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Civil rights icons like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Justice Thurgood Marshall have become household names, but the work and legacy of Constance Baker Motley is still unknown to many Americans. Over half a century as an attorney and later as a judge, Motley helped craft the argument in Brown versus Board of Education. She helped desegregate some of the South's largest universities and she became the first Black woman to speak in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. This week on Disrupted, a look into the life and legacy of the first Black woman appointed to a federal court. Connie Royster joins us. She's a retired attorney, former director of development at the Yale Divinity School, and the niece of Constance Baker Motley. Tamiko Brown-Nagan is Dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. She's also the author of the book, Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Connie and Tamiko, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you. Connie, let's start with you because I think it's important for our listeners to understand the legacy of Constance Baker Motley, but also to know the lineage and how important that is to shaping her journey. So share with our listeners, your grandparents came from Nevis to New Haven and encountered a lot of challenges in making that journey to the U.S. Share with us a little bit about that experience and how you think it becomes important to your aunt's journey. My grandparents, Judge Motley's mother and father, came from the teeny island of Nevis in the British West Indies in the beginning of the 1900s. First my grandfather and then my grandmother. And they landed in New Haven, having been advised that this is where jobs could be found at Yale. And my grandfather uh, and his brothers and cousins and friends did indeed find jobs at Yale mostly as chefs and maitre d's and uh, such at the Yale eating establishments and fraternities, including my grandfather being a chef at Skull and Bones, uh, the famous Skull and Bones, but others at other fraternities and eating houses around the campus. It was hard going. The family was, um, you know, they were working class people, 
um, but they did have jobs. <laughs> My aunt was the ninth of 13 children. So it was a big family. And the family was also the staging ground for other families coming from Nevis to New Haven. So it was a, an open home, open house, and the sofa was all often filled. They were also very much church people. So it was uh, a very strong family and strong family life with very strong British, let's call it um, uh, implications. That is to say, very strict. Tamiko, let's talk about some of those ways and standards, because you are a scholar of constitutional law and history. And one of the things that we know about the history of immigrants, particularly immigrants coming to the U.S. for these new opportunities, is that the ideology tends to be more conservative in terms of what can be accomplished in the U.S. and also the values for the family. And one of the things that I think is important here is coming up in the Baker household with these more conservative views, Constance Baker Motley is then exposed to the voices of people like James Weldon Johnson and W.B. Du Bois. What's the impact that you think happened there in terms of shaping not just ideological beliefs, but the possibilities of what could be accomplished in her life? So that's a great question. And what I would say is, as as Connie said, the family is socially conservative, it is religious, and there are ways in which all of those things are, are fantastic values to impart to one's children. On the other hand, the family also followed gender conventions. And so it was not expected that Constance Baker, this working class Black girl growing up in New Haven, would want to do something as, frankly, radical as not only attend college, but attend law school. And it's because of those influences, those external influences, in part, that Baker does want both of those things. She develops a social consciousness very early in her life. Um, she's involved in a variety of what you might call social justice organizations. Uh, she learns about the, the, the teachings of W.B. Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson. She uh, is aware of George Crawford, who is this Black lawyer who had grown up in Alabama, attended Yale Law School, and was a collaborator with the NAACP. And so she, she wants to reach heights that and go to places where by traditional thinking she doesn't belong. Uh, and so she's this incredibly intelligent, precocious young woman who, as I as I write in my book, either you know because of or despite of some of the teachings in her household, she grows up to become the civil rights queen. Let's continue that that thought because one of the other values that is often a part of the immigrant experience, that pursuit of the American dream, is that if you just work hard, the opportunities will come and you will be able to follow your path. But we know that for many immigrants, particularly Black immigrants, it's never that simple. That as hard as you work, as committed as you are, there are obstacles and barriers, and often that is one of finance, the ability to pursue your dreams in ways that others take for granted. And you also mentioned the importance of a man named Clarence Blakesley in making some of those opportunities possible to connect Constance's hard work and dedication to opportunity. Share with our listeners who he was and the role that he played in this journey. 
Sure. A very important figure. Clarence Blakesley was a graduate of Yale and a wealthy New Haven contractor and philanthropist. And he was taken with Constance Baker when he heard her give a talk at the Q House uh, in New Haven, which was a facility for Black people in New Haven. It was underutilized. And this young Constance Baker did something which was just tremendous and frankly unexpected, which is that she said, well, the facility is underutilized because Black people aren't involved in in its creation and in its programming. Uh, And she was so well-spoken and thoughtful and self-possessed and obviously intelligent that Blakesley inquired after her. And in talking to her, he asked her, you know, why aren't you in college? She's about 18 and 19 years old at this time. And he offers to pay her college tuition and her law school tuition, uh, saying that, you know, he's sending his son to Harvard Law School. If he can send him to Harvard, he can send her to Columbia. And and that is what happened. And Baker calls it, she says, it's like a fairy tale. And indeed it is to have this person swoop into her life uh, and enable her ascent. Connie, how did your aunt see that that swooping in or that investment in her? You know, did she see this as now I have this opportunity, I'm going to make the most of it? Or was there surprise that of all of the amazing students, all of those opportunities, she was the one who was chosen to have this opportunity? Oh, it's su- such surprise. And I think uh, it was an example of what can happen. Certainly it was a fairy tale, but she took it with such grace. And he was such an incredible human being um, that he didn't just give her money and then disappear. He stayed with her throughout her career, her, her educational career, at least, and, and showed up at her graduations. So it wasn't just a handout. And I think it meant for her, showed the importance of education and that it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's earned and you be thankful for it. It's the most important thing. And it's something that she passed on to us. And if I may just jump back in there and, and talk about the, the social support and the mentoring that came along with the, the resources I talk about in my book how Blakesley would write her letters of encouragement when she was in college and in law school, you know, just telling her to go on, almost like a father. And I just find this remarkable. What an incredible individual to not only write a check, but encourage this young woman and young Black woman. It is it is an incredible story. And, and frankly, uh, it makes me think about divine intervention, right? Someone who, you know, she, she, was, she was in a sense chosen uh, to, do, to, to go on this mission in the cause of civil rights. And, and you had that, that angel uh, in the personage of Clarence Blakesley who, who helped her along the way. That was Tamiko Brown-Nagan, professor of constitutional law at Harvard University and author of a recent book on Judge Constance Baker Motley. We were also joined by Connie Royster, Motley's niece and a retired attorney. When we come back, more from our conversation. We'll hear about Motley's work with the NAACP and her pivot into politics. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're looking back at the life and career of historic judge Constance Baker Motley. We're joined by Tamiko Brown-Nagan and Connie Royster. Tamiko is dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, and she's author of Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Connie is a retired attorney and the niece of the late judge. After leaving New Haven, Constance Baker Motley received her degree at New York University, and in 1946, she graduated from Columbia Law School. Her mentors hoped that she might be able to join a prestigious firm in New York City. Instead, she secured a position with the NAACP's Legal Defense and Educational Fund. I asked Connie to describe how her aunt came to work with the NAACP. The transition and her uh, opportunity to get a job with the Legal Defense Fund, thanks to a fellow classmate who was leaving a position at the Legal Defense Fund and introduced her to Thurgood Marshall. Um, It was a, a transition that she was able to make and was, again, kind of a divine intervention. Uh, a fortuitous um, opportunity that I think um, we all need to be very grateful for. And I'll turn it back to Tamigo on that one. Sure. I think it's important to emphasize the contrast between her experience with those law firms that she applied to and essentially had the door closed in her face and the interaction with Thurgood Marshall, where he hired her on the spot when she came to Uh, interview for the internship position and regaled her with stories about Black women whom he had known, who had worked outside of the home, uh, primarily teachers, and he could see her talent. And she grew into this tremendous lawyer while working at the Ing Fund for 20 years and which is not to say that it was it was a perfect uh, workplace. Indeed, it was not. There were blind spots around gender in that workplace, as would have been the case for you know, in any workplace at that time. And yet, I, she she adored Thurgood Marshall and and always talked about him as someone who took a chance on her at a time when other other firms, other entities were not taking a chance on women. And I mean that not, these were talented women, Uh, not only Motley, Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, none of these amazing women, excellent lawyers could get jobs at that time in other places. And so she always said that had it not been for Thurgood Marshall, no one ever would have heard of Constance Baker Motley. And I think that's an important point to make about her experience at the Ink Fund. I think that context is critical because we have a a tendency in looking back on history to make it very simple and simplistic and to think about the understandings at the time, the challenges that people faced at the time, and understanding that attacking Jim Crow was literally a threat to people's lives and livelihood to take that on. And yet Constance Baker Motley did it. She went to the South to protest these things in a way that said, let's make the law work for the people, even if they are thought of being beyond the bounds of that protection and freedom. And Tamiko, you open in your book by sharing with the readers a story about the killing of Sam Terry in 1949 and the subsequent battle that Motley led to get justice for his family. 
Why do you think it was so important to tell that story in that context? Well, I tell that story because it is sadly so relevant to today uh, in an age when we are um, involved in, it is said, a racial reckoning after the killing of so many Black people, Black men in particular, George Floyd, really bringing to the forefront for a lot of people who perhaps had not been really looking that Black life is devalued in this country. And it's been devalued for a very long time. And I thought it important to open my book by setting the scene in a way that shows the continuity in the experience of race and racism in America. At the same time, I wanted to show uh, the breadth of, of Judge Motley's experience as a lawyer. She was involved in you know, these cases uh, defending Black uh, veterans and sol- soldiers, housing cases, voting rights. She represented criminal defendants. And then all of these school cases at both the K through 12 and higher education level, um, she was just uh, just an amazingly talented lawyer who had such an tremendous impact on changing the legal architecture of this country. Connie, one of the the realities in the U.S. is that for women, particularly for Black women, it's not enough to just be qualified or to meet the basic standard. Black women often have to be overqualified, and it still does not guarantee the kinds of opportunities that some other people take for granted. And one of the pivots in your aunt's life that I want us to think about and how she was able to, as Tamiko said, work in so many spaces, is that after being passed over for promotion at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, she pursued other opportunities. But I think it speaks to the continuing challenge. What was that experience like for her? And what was the pivot to say, I will now take my experience and my talent into the political space and raise these same issues that I've been passionate about for so long. I think that speaks to who she was and who and what her upbringing was. You don't give up. You you take what you've learned and you take um, the family values and you move forward. I think to to pick up on what. Uh, t- Tamiko was just talking about the situation with the George Floyd killings and what's happened more recently that's come to, to public light, although we've known about it forever. I, I'm, I'm very glad that she's not around to be seeing some of this because, you know, she lived through the bull Connor and, you know, the sicking of dogs on people and spraying of hot water hydrants on protesters. And you know, that she wasn't here to see George Floyd lynched by people charged with serving the public. And every day we seem to hear of some other um, police killing of unarmed Black men. And Tamika just mentioned, you know, that we are in a very difficult period in time. And I think she would have been very saddened um, and even uh, sick to her stomach uh, the way Tamika's book describes how you know she took to her bed after Medgar Evers was killed. Um, at the same time, she would say that we have no choice but to keep fighting. And that's part of her makeup, right? It's part of who she was. Um, she 
may have gone to bed for a bit, but she then got up and uh, continued in her uh, particular fight. Her way of fighting was to pivot to the political arena uh, and do it extraordinarily well uh, for someone who had no political experience and really not a real political bone in her body in terms of, you know, prior uh, prior experience in, in that arena. Um, and, and then she took, took that on. And I think that even in today's way of looking at things, she would say, that's what we have to do. And that's what we as a people do. We keep going. Yes, if I can build on that. Uh, I, I am, as, as Connie was speaking, I was thinking about a quote um, uh, from Motley where she says, she was a woman who would not be put down, just would not be put down. Uh, she was going about her business. She had a sense of mission and total commitment. And she did experience disrespect. She did work under threat of her life, but she kept going. And I believe she kept going because she knew herself. She knew her talents. She knew her strength and her resilience. She had those values taught in her home and in her community. And, and she just, uh, she, she persisted, uh, as we're saying these days. Nevertheless, she persisted. And I think that's a wonderful thing. The other part, point I would make about her entry into politics is that it's an example of experiencing a setback, but turning it into an opportunity. So she did not get the promotion that she wanted at the Ing Fun, and yet the failure to receive that promotion opened up this whole new vista for her. So that when these politicians in New York came calling, after a while, she was like, huh, okay, well, maybe I will try this. I do have name recognition, which is an invaluable asset in, in politics. And so she put herself out there. And it was not an easy transition. As, as Connie said, she, she was not a, a political animal in the way that some people are. She was, a, she was a reserved person. And in order to be elected, she had to go and do meeting and greeting in a way that did not strike me as, as her, her natural way of being. Um, and yet she did it and she did it well. It was another role in which she pursued her commitments to social justice. And while there were some at the time who thought she should stay in her lane or who thought that she was, she was insufficiently radical, and this is at the dawn of the Black Power movement, I think she made tremendous contributions in her two-year stint in, in New York politics, more than many people would make in a lifetime. That was author and Harvard professor Tamiko Brown-Nagan. And Connie Royster is a retired attorney and the niece of the late Judge Constance Baker Motley. After the break, how do we ensure that the story of Motley's life is taught to the next generation of leaders? This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the life of famed civil rights lawyer and federal judge, Constance Baker Motley. Tamiko Brown-Nagan and Connie Royster are here to help us understand her history. Nagan is a Harvard professor and author of Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Royster is a retired attorney and the niece of Constance Baker Motley. While much is known about the public career of Judge Motley, far less is discussed about her personal life. I asked Connie about her aunt's relationship with the family. My grandmother was a very uh, calm force, but she was a force. You know, she was, you know, the first female vestry woman in the Episcopal Church in Connecticut. So, and she was um, loving. I visualize my aunt coming home to get that hug and to be surrounded by her siblings, um, to get that strength uh, that was very strong in the family. The siblings were, her brothers and sisters were incredibly close. And this was, I believe, very, very critical to her ability to make these changes. The siblings were, you know, they, they stuck together. <laughs> they stuck together t- at every step from beginning to the very, very end um, to the last sibling died just a couple of years ago. And they were there for one another. Now they didn't necessarily all understand what it was that she was doing at every step, but they were unbelievably proud of her, unbelievably proud. And so when they could, they would show up. They would be there for her celebrations and her honorings and her elevations and such. And so I think she took great strength from her family. And yes, um, her siblings, her mother, her father died in, I think, 54, 1954 or so. But her mother was there, you know, until 1973. Uh, So saw her into the political and to the um, elevation to the bench. And, you know, we carry that on too. I try to be there. I tried to be there. I was there for lots of it because I was so proud also. So proud. Tamiko, we started by talking about lineage and also legacy. And one of the manifestations of that legacy that we've seen is that Katanji Brown Jackson will now be the first African-American woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. It makes me proud to even say that because it's something that I don't think I could have imagined as a child growing up. But what I think is so touching about that is that when she spoke about her nomination, she acknowledged and gave gratitude to Constance Baker Motley, that I think too often we forget those who, who lay the pathway for us to pursue our goals and passions. What do you think then is the legacy of Constance Baker Motley that this nation needs to remember, but also that we need to honor and affirm? You know, I was so happy to hear Judge Jackson, now uh, Associate Justice Jackson, call out 
Constance Baker Motley's name, I thought it was a mark of character, a mark of character that she did that, that she remembered the elders, that she remembered who paved the way. I had great resonance with that moment, not and, and not um, only because I just wrote a book about this amazing figure, but it, it spoke to me as a woman of color, as a black woman to just carry that legacy forward. And, and what is the legacy? Well, it's a legacy of, of um, using her intellect to undo Jim Crow, to undo racial oppression in this country under law. Um, and we need to not lose sight of what a tremendous accomplishment that was. And I say this in part because it is true that there is terrible continuity in America's racial history. But certainly for those of us who grew up in the Deep South, we also know there has been tremendous change in this country. And we need to recognize that it's Constance Baker Motley, in addition to Thurgood Marshall and, and all of the men whose names uh, many of us have known for a very long time, who helped to bring about that change. And through personal uh, fortitude, resilience, sacrifice, sacrifice in her family life, um, that is her legacy. And it's one that we can be proud of, um, we should lift up, and that we should carry forward. It's our turn now. It's our turn now. Um, and those are some of the things that I, I think about when I am asked to reflect on, on what Motley's legacy is. Connie, I want to turn to you because more than just being this groundbreaking pioneer, Constance Baker Motley was your aunt. And I think I shared this with you a couple years ago, randomly when we crossed paths in a grocery store parking lot, of what it meant for my young daughter at the time to do her project on Constance Baker Motley. And to say, even in her hometown of New Haven, there are people who aren't aware of this outsized impact that she had on our country and the rights we have today that we often take for granted or overlook the progress, as Tamiko mentioned. What do you think we should be doing collectively to honor your aunt's legacy, but to ensure that there's not another generation of young people who not only don't know her name, but don't recognize the impact on this country? It is really on us uh, to make sure that uh, the legacy is, is uh, preserved, passed down, passed on. Um, it, it truly astonishes me that New Haven, um, Connecticut in large measure, Yale University, which gave her an honorary degree in 1987, um, these places have not embraced their daughter. Um, and um, Chester, Connecticut, where she had a summer home for 40 years, um, has honored her and has, you know, recognized that, you know, her presence there means something and meant something to United States history. And um, so there's the, the Chester Land Trust has established the Little Rock Nine um, trail and her home there is on the Connecticut Freedom Trail. And things have happened there, but nothing's really happened in New Haven of any significance. 
that uh, we can take our children like your daughter and say, this is Constance Baker Motley. Um, this was her home and she should be in the history books just like all the men who are there. And I think that what we've experienced over the last few years with first, um, uh, you know, Kamala Harris mentioning her when she accepted the nomination for the vice presidency. And I'm sitting there listening and she says, you know, and I, I'm, I, I owe my career to Constance Baker Motley and I'm jumping off my seat because nobody has said that in public. Literally, nobody's mentioned her name, whereas so much of where we are today, as, as, as uh, Tamika has just you know, uh, listed, we owe to her. <laughs> um, this country really does owe so much to her. And so on the national stage, um, that we, we need to be thinking, what do we need to do to make sure that her legacy is known and that she is no longer a hidden figure? So the sky's open, right? We need to think big about how to honor this uh, amazing human being. I, I, I am so grateful to Jamaica for this book. This is groundbreaking. Um, and while they say that timing is everything, timing is everything. <laughs> and you know, the nomination um, and this book and um, an effort right now to get a congressional gold medal uh, in her honor as, um, as Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro talked about a couple of months ago or a month ago or so. I think these are really important things. And um, yeah, so naming opportunities. Come on, let's just do it. Yale, was a, as you mentioned a while back to me ago, Yale was a missed opportunity not naming a college in her name. That's right. And I, I did submit her name when Yale uh, was, was considering renaming Calhoun College but there'll be other opportunities for Yale uh, to, to lift up Motley and as well as for New Haven, for Connecticut, for the nation. You know, there ought to be schools named for her. Um, there ought to be a, a, a wonderful statue of her. It should, you know, she stood nearly six feet tall and I would love to see an imposing statue with, with, uh, of Motley so that people uh, publicly can engage with her legacy. Um, there, there's a lot that can be done. And I am so proud to send this book out into the world at, at such a timely moment. And I, I, am, I am hoping that with all of the um, references to Motley and with the book, that our desire that her name be etched in every possible public space will be realized in this moment. Tamiko, as we come to the close of our time together, I wonder if you could offer our listeners one thing that you take from Constance Baker Motley's journey and legacy 
that you apply in your own career. Again, the groundbreaking work that you are doing in so many arenas to create opportunity and to realize the promise of democracy in the U.S. So what a great question. And if I had to summarize the lesson that Motley teaches me that I try to apply, it's just be fierce, be fearless, stick to your principles, show up as authentically yourself and, and do the work. Um, that's what she represents to me. I remember her when I encounter challenges in my life, in my professional life, or even in my personal life. And one of the things we haven't talked about is uh, that Motley was a, a mother and, and a wife. And while she was breaking all of those professional barriers, she was juggling her, her home life, uh, as many of us do. Um, and often it feels impossible. And yet we, we just need to keep going um, and have a, a sense of just uh, personal fearlessness when we encounter challenges. Connie, that sense of grace that was pervasive throughout Constance Baker Motley's life. And that is so key, as Tamiko mentioned, for all of us who often feel like we're not doing enough or we're failing or it seems overwhelming. Understanding that human aspect of, yes, this was a woman who was a civil rights pioneer, but at the end of the day, she was a person who had opportunities, who had connections, as all of us seek. What for you is the part of your aunt's legacy that you carry with you? I, I liked what Tamika just said. And to that, for me, I um, would say that to use my actions and my voice in a way as not to be deterred uh, in standing up for what's right and to do it with grace, but uh, to live and try to be a leader and a role model uh, on whose shoulders others will be able to stand the way they did on her shoulders and the way I did on her shoulders, fiercely and not deterred. That was Connie Royster, the niece of Constance Baker Motley and a retired attorney. Tamiko Brown-Nagan is professor and dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. She's author of Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato. If you want to hear more Disrupted, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown Dean, thanking you for listening and supporting. <laughs>